Life will not go as you planned. If that is a realization, you've heard, that's the first time you've ever heard that this morning, let me just say it one more time. Life will not go as you planned. One of the biggest realizations for me was as I was sitting on an airplane up at Columbus Airport, CMH, and I'm sitting in my seat getting ready to take a flight. And things began to go around in my head and I started thinking, what is going on? When I hit about 20,000 feet, I looked out the window and I felt like I emerged from a fog and a bit of a panic started to set in. And I said, this is not what I planned. This is not who I am. What am I doing? I'm headed 8,000 miles away across the ocean to a country I've only visited once for three and a half days. And one and a half of those, I was in a fog because of the time delay. So I barely remember it. I'm going to be met on the ground by an acquaintance. This is not the path I had planned for my life. But I had just gone to a bookstore a little over a year before and innocently picked up a Time magazine. And it told about what was happening in Africa. And about the tragedy of AIDS and the pandemic and what was happening there. And it sparked something in my life. And it brought it all the way to this point as I'm sitting on this plane, March 9th, 2002, saying, Dear God, what have I just done? Now, I'm not afraid to fly, but I was afraid of the destination. You see, here I sat. I was a youth pastor. I was single. And I was two days away from my 30th birthday. I'm headed to a country that speaks Swahili prominently, and I speak no Swahili. I have enough money in my pocket for food, a little bit of rent, and that's about it. All of my earthly belongings are stuck underneath in bags underneath this plane, and I thought, this is not how I thought things were going to go when I had life all figured out when I was 20. Remember 20, everyone? Yeah? You had it all figured out? And I should have known this. I should have known that life's not going to go the way because James chapter 4, verse 13 through 15 says this. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. No matter how methodical we are in our life, no matter how much of a great planner you are, and I am not one of those great planners, but no, how, no matter how much of a great planner you are, things will not go exactly as planned. No matter how tightly we hold on to it, things change. In a few days, we're going to get ready to make resolutions, and maybe you've already made them. These are promises to ourselves. And if we really break down resolution, what, what is a resolution? We are promising ourselves we will do something or be a part of something or stop something so that our lives can be better. It's a promise that I will improve my life in the next year or the lives of others. We are going to plan accordingly so we can live life to the fullest. We're positioning ourselves for health, for our spending habits to be better, our disciplines in such a way that the dream, the plan we have for our life could become a reality. 
But unfortunately, life will not go as you planned. And, and let's be honest, no matter how much you plan and, and put things together, sometimes life openly rebels on us, doesn't it? It, it says, no, absolutely not. And, and so what we do, we step back and as you get older, a little bit wiser, you kind of step to the side and, and you allow things to come and you twist and turn and, and you reevaluate and, and you adjust. And that's life. And the older we get, we realize life's not all about me. It's not going to go the way I want. But what about whenever it does a 360, zero gravity, upside down, inside out turn that leaves you shocked, lonely, confused, afraid, or all of these? When it's not just an adjustment, when it is like a punch in the face by Mike Tyson, followed up with a bulldozer running you over. I watched the Mike Tyson thing last night. That's why that's in my head. Um, what happens? When you never saw that coming, you knew you were going to have to adjust and things were going to have to change. But when the sickness, when the education derailed or deferred or, or financial setbacks, your job is lost, your marriage is on the rocks, or things are just working out differently than what you were sure was going to happen, what do you do? And we sit here this morning and we have to understand life is not going to go as you planned. Matthew chapter 1 is where I'd like to start this morning. And you're like, well, wait, we just had Christmas. But I want to kind of pull out a, a piece of this because I think it's really important for us to understand this. No matter what phase of life you're in, life will not go as you plan. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 16, you've heard the story probably ad nauseum uh, for the last week. And, and really, it's a great story. But listen to this. And Jacob, verse 16, was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, who had been betrothed to Joseph, engaged before they came together, she was found to be a child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Let's, let's, we focus on Mary and Jesus quite a bit, but let's come to Joseph for a moment. It's a young guy. And those of you who have done the Christmas experience and have watched the videos and seen this, the guy with the bad beard, that's Joseph. And, and this guy, though, had his eye on this young lady and, and probably for some time had been planning and saving. And in that part of the world, you would do what's called a dowry, where you'd save up as much money as you can to pay for the daughter. And, uh, and you'd say, hey, I'll bring this amount of goats or this amount of cows or this money. And, and so he had been doing this. He'd fallen in love. He was working in the family business, as many of the men did in that day. Uh, probably uh, had, had all these great plans. We said, once we're married, Mary, one day we're going to build our own house. Now, for right now, we're going to live in mom and dad's, but one day we're going to build our own house. All that he wanted to do was to live a quiet life, pay his taxes, have a humble but content life in Nazareth, fly below the radar, grow his family, maybe even have a son that will carry on his name. He was just a simple guy. He wasn't acting, asking for anything that was exorbitant or anything that was out of line. He just wanted to live life and be left alone and do his thing. And then this happened. The woman that he loved is pregnant. And he knows it's not his child. The woman that he loved, that he was going to step into marriage with and begin this amazing life that he'd planned for a long time, 
She has a child on the way, and he does not know who the father is. And here's the thing about Joseph is this, is that he deserved the life that he had dreamed of. The Bible calls him a just man. And what that means is that he was good, pure of heart, and that he would seek to make godly decisions. And he had done all the things in right order. He, he had stayed away from sexual immorality. He had honored her with her parents. And it says he was a good man. The house was ready. The wedding prep was done. And then she's pregnant. He and his family would be shamed. He loved her so much, though. He said, even though I'll be shamed, even though everyone will ridicule me and all this is going to fall apart, I can't shame you. And it shows what a good man he was. Because in that day, what you could do was openly shame your wife and step away and ask for a bill of divorcement. I want nothing to do with her. And he'd be able to walk away because they took divorce so seriously in that time. But he wasn't willing to do that. What he wanted to do is make it go away quietly. Allow her to escape up country to a family's house, maybe to the countryside where she would have the child. Very few people would ask questions. No one would know. She would be embarrassed among her own family, but society would not necessarily shun her. His life seemed to be in shambles and all that mattered now was slipping away. What had he done wrong to deserve this? Can you imagine his mind just cranking? God, really? You told me to do all these things. Why me? And it'd be hard to hold on to his forefather, David, who in Psalm chapter 62, verse 5 through 8, said this. Now, understand, they would have memorized many, many of these psalms. And here's what he says. He says, my soul wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. He, is, he only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is our refuge for us. Selah. Those are great verses whenever your life is not twisted up and turned inside out, aren't they? We love to hand those verses to other people who are going through mourning and who are hurting. But you know how it is. When you're in that moment and life has just come at you like a train and it has hit you full on and you're standing there reeling and someone says, I just want to share this verse with you real quick. You're like, listen, bro, back up. Just let me breathe for a minute. I know this will be good for me, but right now I'm still just trying to catch my breath. Anybody ever been there? Anybody? Just me? Okay, just want to make sure we're not alone. I'm not alone here today. As Joseph is standing there, and all this is cranking through his mind. He's trying to, how do I honor her? But how do I still, you know, uh, salvage my life? And why would she do this to me? And I can't understand this. In, verse chapter, in, in chapter 1, verse 20 of Matthew, here's what he said. This happens. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. I love how he identified him with the great king. Son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. God came in to redeem the interruption. The thing that looked like it was going to be the greatest tragedy in his life, the thing that would bring the greatest embarrassment and maybe even hurt his business for a long time, God stepped in and said, no, 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 no. It's not what you think. I made this happen. It looks like tragedy. It looks like everything's falling apart. It looks like the wheels have just come up. I did this. 
Now, in that moment, if he's like me, they're like, but why? That doesn't make sense. There's got to be another way without tearing my life apart. But what God wanted to do was he was bringing redemption to Israel through this family. And things would not be the same. But he had to be willing to endure the embarrassment and the mockery of a pregnant fiance, knowing that by going through his situation, salvation was coming to his house and all of Israel. This is what's interesting. Verses in verse 22, where God looks and says, listen, I know all this is inconvenient and I know it's hard for you. But this has to happen so that what was spoken by Isaiah over eight, over 700 years before can come to pass. So many times we look in our lives and we say, wait a second, man. Why is all this happening to me? And we think maybe I did something wrong or God's judging me or, 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 or it's just unfair. And perhaps God is saying, no, no, this is an inconvenience. And yeah, it's going to be difficult. But I'm doing this because I need you to understand. And I need these things to come forward. And I need things to happen that can only happen through this situation. So you're going to have to endure a little bit. You're going to have to ride this out. It's going to be difficult, yes. But it is my plan. His plans were interrupted, but they're interrupted so something greater could be added. He would not only get to marry his love, have children that would carry on his name, as Jesus had brothers and perhaps sisters, carry on his carpentry business. But listen to this. All that. So he got his dream, but he also got this. He was tasked with feeding, clothing, instructing, and loving the promised Messiah, the Son of God. He would wake up at the 2 a.m. feeding to carry around and rock the Messiah, the Son of God in his arms. He would kiss the forehead daily of the Christ child. But what if he had said, no, I don't want to go through all this before God had said, no, no, I want to tell you what's going to happen. I don't want to be inconvenienced by all this because my plan is here. And God said, no, no, your plan is good. My plan is greater. What if he said, I don't want this. Christ child would still have been born, but he would never have been able to walk in that. He could truly resonate what would be written by the Apostle Paul later on, who said this, Romans 8.28. We've heard the verse before, but it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Where you say, I'm inconvenienced. It's hard. It's difficult. I don't like it. But I'm willing to, change, to exchange the pain of my story for the glory of God's. I'm willing to step in and say, God, whatever you desire. Let's go back a little bit more. 1,876 years, approximately, before. In 1876 B.C., there's a guy named Joseph, who's the son of Jacob, and this is in Genesis chapter 37, verse 5 through 11. Now, it's another Joseph, it's another time, and it's another place. And, and here's what happened to him. Then Joseph had a dream, see a theme here? And when he had told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Not a good way to start. He said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheep rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. 
Now, he had another dream and related to his brothers and said, now, here's the deal. You think he would have learned, but he didn't. Lo, I still had another dream, which I know you'll be excited to hear about. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have said? What that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before the ground? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Bring context here. Dreams were very common ways for God to speak in that time and throughout the Bible. And, and perhaps even today, in many parts of the world, God speaks very much through dreams as well. At this point, Joseph is the second from the youngest. There's only one younger, his younger brother, Benjamin. So he's like the kid brother. And all his brothers, most of them are significantly older than he is. Joseph was preferred by his dad. In fact, his dad got him the nicest clothes. Almost like a, like a marker. It, was more, it ended up being more like a bullseye, but it was a marker like, this is my boy that I love. For whatever reason, he had favorites. I know none of your families play favorites, but this one did. And he came in and he said, this is my boy. Well, because of that, his brother's like, stupid, this kid. And so they tolerate him. And then one day they're out and they're out doing, uh, with the sheep. And uh, Joseph comes back from the sheep and he goes, Dad, you're not going to believe what these guys are doing. They said bad words. They're stealing from you. They're doing all this. So he reports, on, he tattles on his brothers. So obviously there's repercussions for the brothers were just ticked. Like, you little punk. Then he steps it up another bit and he says, I've had a dream. And in this dream, get this, guys. We're out binding our shoes and then all your shoes bow down to me. They got down and they bow down to me. And he knew what he was saying. Fellas, the day's coming where everybody's bound to Joseph. So get ready. Take that a minute. You got a younger brother or sister? Just think about that for a minute. How much you would love for them to say that to you. Now, in his defense, he's 17. Not that all 17-year-olds are knuckleheads, uh, but some are. Some are. Not only does he say that, he ups it and says, basically, mom and dad, in the next dream, you're going to bow down to me as well, just getting everybody ready for the big show. So he says this, but God had given him this dream. He really felt that. There's a dream. I, this is a prophecy. So he's on the outs with his brothers. And, and as we move forward, uh, he goes out to see his brothers another day. And so they see him coming. They go, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. Judah, his brother, like, I mean, really ticked off. He goes, we're going to bow down to him. We'll see him bow down to him. Let's kill him. So as he comes forward, Reuben steps in and says, no, no, don't kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit and then we'll figure out what to do. And Reuben, his brother, was going to rescue him. Story goes like this. They throw him in a pit. Some traders were on their way to uh, Egypt. And they're taking spices and all the rest. Well, as was common in that day, they would often take slaves and sell them in the market. So they look over, they go, what's he worth? Well, I don't know, maybe like five bucks. Now, we can get seven. So they take them up out of there. They sell them for literally pennies. They say, hey, just take them. We don't want them anymore. And he's taken to the land of Egypt. Now, he's Hebrew. He does not speak Egyptian. And he's taken to this place where he knows no one. He's been betrayed by his brothers. He's away from everything he knows, and he's 17 years old. At some point, he had to look and say, this is not what I had planned. This is not what I was thinking was going down. God, remember the dream thing? The bowing down? What's happening here? 
But something happened in Egypt. Go to Genesis. By the way, if you have not read this, this book is awesome. And Genesis chapter 39 is one of the great stories. So I would really encourage you to check it out because as it walks through his story, uh, it's just fascinating of how it all goes down, especially the cultural pieces too. In Genesis chapter 39, uh, and if you get your Bible, flip over there. But he starts to talk about what happened. So he gets sold, and he's bought by Potiphar, who's, who's a top-notch uh, uh, general in the army of Pharaoh. And if you've heard any of the story, I won't bore you with all the details. But basically something happened, and he began to thrive. Verse number 2 of Genesis 39 says, The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became a personal servant, and made him overseer of his whole house. So Joseph may be thinking, all right, you know what? This wasn't exactly how I thought, but I'm holding on to this promise. I'm going to do the best I can. So things are going well. I'm in a different land, but hey, I'm a slave, but at least I'm top tier slave. And so everything's going well for a while. And then Potiphar's wife comes in. She looks at him. She goes, "Mm -mm -mm. young, young man, come here. And so she tries to seduce him a couple different times. She says, no, 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 no. And finally, one day, she got like crazy cougar eyes, and she grabbed on to his coat. She said, come here, boy. And he, whoa, hey, he slid out of that coat, ran outside, and said, don't go in there. Well, she accused him of trying to come in and trying to rape her and all this crazy stuff. And so Potiphar comes home. And it is interesting, if you look at the story, because Potiphar comes home, and she tells him the story. And he gets angry. He doesn't say what he's angry about. But instead of killing him, which he probably should have done, he throws him in jail. I doubt it was her first time making this accusation. And so he looks at her. Uh, so Joseph looks at his life. He goes, wait a second. I thought I was going to get out of this situation. Maybe I'll buy my freedom and then go back to the plan that I know was already laid out for me. And he's thrown into jail. In jail, again, Genesis chapter 40, he's successful again. Actually, the general looks at him and goes, man, you're, you're really good. Why don't you just take care of all the prisoners and everything that goes on here? He outsourced. And as he began to do all these things, there's two people that were brought into the jail. And Joseph is working hard and thinking, well, maybe this is just where God has me for right now. But I know there's a promise. But this is not how I had things planned. And so he's sitting in the jail and these, a cupbearer and, and also the chief baker for Pharaoh, who's the ruler over, over Egypt, were brought in. And so whether they had bad food that day or whatever else, he said, listen, uh, take care of these guys. The jailer told him. One night, these guys had a uh, dream and and they're dejected. And, and Joseph walked in and said, guys, what's wrong? They're like, well, one, we're in jail. Two, we really, really had some bad dreams. And he said, well, why don't you tell me what your dream is and, and maybe my God will interpret it. And so they tell him the dream and he says, oh, wow, okay. Cupbearer, just so you know, your dream says that you're going to be released in three days and restored to your position. The baker got all excited. He's like, all right, man, tell me mine. He goes, not so good for you. Basically, in three days, you're going to be released, but you're also going to be released from life because they're going to hang you. So he was more dejected. But either way, the cupbearer gets out and all Joseph said is, remember me when you get out. Get me out of this place, man. My life was not supposed to be like this. Cupbearer gets out, is restored, and for two years he forgets about him. Two years. Twenty-four months sitting in that jail, he forgets about him. I can imagine that hope begins to slide away. 
But then the Pharaoh has a dream, and, and then in the dream, as we remember, he, he read about, he, heard, uh, he dreamed about cows and, and some dying and some thriving, and what does this mean? And everybody is uh, like, we, we, we don't have a clue on this one. And the cupbearer is sitting there with the cup. Oh, wait a second. Pharaoh, can I say something? A couple years ago, probably should remember this before now, a couple years ago, I'm in jail, and he told me, I told me my dream and all this worked out. Pharaoh says, bring him to me. And so they go and they bring Joseph up out of jail. And Joseph makes it very clear, and I love this. He looks up at Pharaoh and he says, I'm not the one who's going to interpret this. My God will. So just so you understand that, but let me tell you. And he tells them that there's going to be seven years of, fam- uh, seven years of amazing harvest and seven years of famine. And, and so they need to get prepared. He goes, listen, Pharaoh, if I'm you, put somebody in charge of this whole deal. And, uh, man, get somebody who's a really good manager because you're going to need this. Pharaoh looks at him and goes, okay, your job. Think about this. It had been 13 years since all this had happened. Now, Joseph is sitting here, and Pharaoh has just made him second in command of Egypt. Joseph goes, wait, wait, this is really not the plan. As the story goes, basically, so they, they gather all the food, and they put it in the storehouses, and everything comes together. Then famine strikes. And it strikes everywhere. And drought is there and people don't have food. And then who comes calling to Egypt but Joseph's brothers? They said, we have no more food. And so they come in and, and they, they see him. And they realize because of the, the, what was around his neck and the signet ring and all the rest, this guy is very high up. And so his brothers come in. And as they would in that time, they got on their knees and they bowed. Let's be honest. He had to laugh a little bit, right? He's like, <laughs> gotcha. All right. And they bowed and they said, we're trying to bring food and, and, and trying to take care of our family. And he plays some games with them back and forth. Doesn't tell who he is. All of this, all of this craziness, all of his upset life was God's plan. He held on to that dream that one day, God, I know you gave this to me and I know you put it out there and I know I've made some mistakes and I've been arrogant and I've done some things. But all of this was for this reason. And let me just walk you through the, the, just the real quick version. Think about this. Joseph, 17 years old. Does he need to be ruler over Egypt? Absolutely not. So what does he have to do? God has to put him through a refining time in Potiphar's house. Joseph probably managed nothing because he's a kid. At that time, he was given no responsibility. All his brothers had responsibility. So he's put into Potiphar's house, and he learns how to manage the household wares, doesn't he? You've got to learn how to budget. You've got to learn how to manage. I'm going to be over all these people. You guys go over here. Let's put this away. Put this flour away. Put this grain away. Sound familiar? And then he's put into a political prison where now he has contact with all sorts of different people who have reigned throughout the land. So he gets to know the lay of the land and he gets to know how things work. And he's sitting there going, I've got to manage all of you people. So he learned how to do household management. He learned how to do budgeting. He learned how to make things organized and manage things. And they learned how to work with people in the prison. And what were the greatest assets that he had to have whenever he came out and Pharaoh was going to put him in charge? Working with people, managerial and being able also to know the Egyptian language. You think about all those pieces. Yeah, in his mind, it could never, he could never have conceived that. But God said, no, this is how it is. Genesis 45 through, uh, uh, 5 through 8 says this. He's talking to his brothers because now they're scared out of their mind. They find out who he is. He says, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you 
to preserve life. For the famine has been in these land these two years. There's still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a Pharaoh, a father to the Pharaoh and the, uh, I mean, a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. See, this is the thing. So many times when we lay out our plans and this is what we could do. And God has given this to me and there's a call on my life and I know it's there. And we're still abiding and walking with God. And all these things come and flip it upside down like that does not make sense. And God says, no, I'm refining. I'm making you. I'm giving you skill sets you would never have had. Trust me, the plan's still active, even though it may not feel like it. And as Joseph laid out for us, he just kept pressing in and pressing in and saying, God, I will not depart from this. I will not depart from this. Last one is in John chapter 4, 5 through 10. This is an interesting story, and, and you, perhaps you've heard it before, and it's about a, a Samaritan woman. Context is this. At this time in the world, the Samaritans were disdained by the Jews, and they could not stand them. And when they would look at them, they just wanted nothing to do with them. And so this Samaritan woman... Uh, was coming to a well, and Jesus had to go through Samaria. And so he stopped at the well and sent the disciples in. He said, man, I'm tired. Just, let's go get, go get some food and come back. And as the story goes, it says he came to, in John chapter 4, verse 5, came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. When Jacob's well was there, Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's about noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask for me a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus is sitting there by this well. This woman comes out alone. Now, there's a lot of supposition that happens with her life and all the rest. But I'll guarantee, as a young lady, she had a plan. She probably looked at her life as a young girl growing up in Samaria thinking, you know what? One day I'm going to marry that handsome guy. And that guy will come in and he'll take care of me. He'll sweep me off my feet and he will love me. And I'll have children, lots of children. They'll all be running around my feet and we're just going to, we're just going to have a great life. And she looked at her mom and dad and saw their life and said, that's how it's going to be. But as the story goes on, he talks to her a little bit more. And tells her about the living water that she can have and how he has come to bring eternal life. And she responds to a question he asked, very interesting. He said, go bring your husband, because in that time the husband would teach the wife the things of the word of God. Go bring your husband to me. And she says, I I don't have a husband. And Jesus looked at her and said, you're right, you don't. You've had five. And this one you're with is not your husband. What I love, love, love about this, there is zero condemnation in this story. There is no condemnation. Because let's think about this. Do we really know her story? No one sets out to be married five times. I'm going to be married five times. This is my goal in life. So either things went badly, bad string of luck, perhaps husbands died. Maybe she was barren. And and in some cultures, they could disown her and say, you know what? You're barren. Get away. I don't want you anymore. I'm divorcing you because you cannot bring me children. Or perhaps, who knows what happened, but she had gone through five husbands, five marriages, and her heart was broken. Now it appears she was an outcast. She came alone to the well at noon, the hottest part of the day. No one does that. 
Her childhood friends probably snickered at her in the streets and said, there she goes. But she was alone. And perhaps she thought she was stuck. This is not the plan I had. I'm the woman no one wants and everyone avoids. But my lot in life, my lot in life is cast, and this is how it's going to be. And Jesus looks at her, knowing full well what happened and everything in her life, and he offers her something she could never have gotten on her own. He said, I'm going to give you a brand new start. And he spoke to the source of her deepest shame, but never condemned her. He invited her to something that she thought she had lost long ago, which is freedom from condemnation. What she saw as a, as a life that would be marked by bad decisions, Christ saw as one that would be marked by redemption, reconciliation, and hope. She was the key to reaching the Samaritan people with the news of the Messiah. Because here's what happens. So this woman, rejected, abandoned, outcast, no one wants her. Jesus says, let me tell you. She runs back into the city, leaves her water pot there, goes, you're not going to believe this. This man told me everything that I've done. Now, did he tell her everything she, he had done? Yes or no? No. He told her what? One thing. The predominant thing. The thing that brought shame in her life. But he didn't condemn her. So he told me everything. Could this be the Christ? And so they all come out. Said that many people believed. And then Jesus spent two more days with them. She, listen to me, hear this. The woman who everybody had written off. The woman that she'd lived in sin. The woman who other people looked at and said, you are not part of our religious establishment. The woman who probably was cynical towards the religious establishment. In fact, became the one to usher the Messiah into the Samaritan life. Said many believed that day. And it says that her heritage was not the woman at the well who had five husbands, but in fact the woman who brought Jesus to her people. Life didn't go as she planned. It went much, much better. Your life will not go as you planned, and that may be the best thing ever. You see, the purpose of our lives is not to have a checklist of all the things we want to do and to be, and have them fully checked off. It's not to bucket list it. And when we sit down and we say, okay, I want to do this, this, this. It's good to have goals and it's good to strive for them. That's entitlement. I deserve this. I want this. What we're called to have is what's called an eternal mentality. The purpose of our lives is to bring glory to God in whatever circumstance we find. Whether fulfilled or feeling empty. Whether we're blessed or persecuted, married or single, childless or many children, happily employed or jobless. When we wait expectantly on God, may we wait with a desire that his will be done above and beyond what we desire, regardless. And maybe you came in today and you're looking at a new year and you're like, I'm not looking forward to this. It's just going to be the same. Why even try? Or this last year has been hell on earth for you. It's been hard. And it's been difficult. And you're like, I just feel like God has, God has left me. I feel like God has abandoned. I want to tell you today that God has not abandoned you. God has not left you. God has not departed. God is not without strength. God is not without power. And God is not without his plan. In fact, whenever we step closer to him, when we abide in him, then he's able to enact that plan in our lives and walk us out of those darkest hours and show us why he did it. It doesn't mean everything's going to be roses. It doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. But it does mean that when we step with him and he says, I will abide with you in this discomfort, in this hard time, in this place that you never thought you'd be in. But I'm here and I will work out my perfect righteousness and I will work out my plan and I will get glory. 
then we can rest. Because when I'm with God, when I'm walking with Him, and He is directing my path, it's going to be okay. Even if I lose my life for the cause of Jesus Christ, it's okay because it brought Him glory if that is my eternal perspective. I landed on my birthday, March 11th, 2002, in Nairobi, Kenya. And I've got to be honest, the first three or four months, I asked that question over and over again. God, is this really what I'm supposed to do? I'm scared. This was not the plan. But God gave me a front row seat to see God build a thriving ministry in Kenya. See a church planted. To see young church planters go out throughout the country of Kenya. And, and to see young men and women revolutionizing uh, their country. Today, some of those young guys are on television. They were on this morning in front of 12 million people sharing the gospel of Christ as they do every Sunday. And those are guys I got to walk with. I met brothers and sisters in Christ who challenge me to this day, who send me notes and send, say, listen, how you doing? How you walking? What's going on with your life? We literally saw thousands of people come to Christ. It's set the course of my life. Even today, uh, I operate Tin Roof Society, and that's an organization that we go around the world building on-ramp for people to engage in missions. It set the course for my life. I met my wife because of this. Come on. Give me a little. What? All right. That, I mean, I'm telling you, that is, I met my wife because she was in Uganda because of my time in Africa. That brought us together. Man, one of the two greatest joys of my life. So if you're looking for a husband, go to Africa. Um, and then it brings me here, standing on this platform today. You know, Kyle and I go way back, but I went to Medina after I came back from Africa because I didn't know how God was going to move things. And that didn't look like part of the plan, but we became great friends. And then because of my experience with missions and, and what we were trying to do here, standing in this spot today is because of what God was doing all along. And sitting on that plane at 20,000 feet and doubting everything, if I could have fast forward 11 years, I would never imagine this would have happened. And I'm kind of glad because it would have scared me out of my mind. But I want you to hear this today in conclusion. Today, we must be willing to exchange the pain of our story for the promise of God's story. Pastor Sal Saberna said this a few weeks ago, and I heard it, and I thought, man, that is good. Let's say it again. We must be willing to exchange the pain of our story for the promise of God's. You may have just been dealt a blow in your life that you feel you may never come back from. That if you even try, it ain't going to happen. You're scared. You're worried. And you're thinking, God, I don't even know if you can make this happen. The claim, Romans 8, 28, which says, we know that we know for the, uh, those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And the key is us abiding in him. We can't be separate from him. We can't be running away. We've got to abide in him. Perhaps you're sure you heard God say something. You were positive. There was a call. There was a direction. And you have tried and tried and tried. And door after door gets slammed. And, and things get twisted around. And you're like, God, you told me to do this. Abide in 1 Corinthians 15:58. Where it says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Our life has already taken some twists and turns, and you sit here feeling as if the cards have been dealt, and the game is over, and you lost. 
God is here saying in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, says, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Because with God, nothing is impossible. Your comeback brings him glory. I want to assure you that there's hope and that there is a way forward. There is a God who, if you and I will submit to him and his plan, and it will bring him glory, he will bring us comfort. And if we align our lives to pursue intimacy with him and trust in him with all of our heart and don't lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him, he will come through. Your story's last chapter can be the greatest yet. But the key is we must give Jesus Christ full control and be satisfied with bringing him glory. When interruptions threaten to bring desperation, frustration, and cynicism, remember these promises today. And I want us to understand this. The fact is this, is that God is not caught off guard by circumstance. But if we are living life with eternal perspective and God-focused purpose, this frees us from hopelessness while empowering us to step boldly towards an unclear but very certain future. And I, and I put unclear there like this because it's not clear to you because you can't see 13 years down the road, 10 years, 5 years, 10 minutes. Life is not going to go as you planned. But if it goes as he planned, all the much better. This morning, I, I, I want to just call us to a, a time an opportunity to kind of start, and not even start the next year. Let's just start this week. Let's start small, okay? Start this week right. Perhaps you're, you're in the place of Joseph. You're London, wondering, what did I do wrong? It all fell apart. Why? I don't get it. And God is saying, this is, this is for my good. Trust me. And you're just having to just grind it out and be a just or righteous person. Or perhaps, as Joseph, the son of Jacob, you're sitting here and you're saying, I know God called me to this. I know that I, I am pursuing, but everything seems like it's turning upside down. And what you need is to be steadfast and to be doing the best. And maybe you just need that extra push today of God. I'm just going to give it to you again. And I'm going to, where I'm at, I'm going to work as hard as I can. And I'm going to do the best for your glory so that when people look at me, they see you. Or perhaps you're like the Samaritan woman sitting at the well. who's walked all that way, desperate, hopeless, cards been dealt, and you're thinking, well, this is the way it's going to be. You see, I serve a God who says that I can be a new creation, that all things can be, old things can be passed away and all things can become new. And maybe this morning that's what you need. It doesn't, it doesn't start by showing up at church and it doesn't, it doesn't start by just being a good person. It starts by a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this does. It's not about being religious and it's not knowing about God. It's about putting our faith and trust in Him and giving Him our lives to do with what He will. Other than that, we're just merely holding on with one hand and grasping for other things with, uh, with everything else. This is the two-handed proposition. I only want you. And I'll pursue you with everything I have. And it's okay if things don't go as I planned, as long as they go as you planned. And this morning, that's an opportunity we all have. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And